Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, We talk astronomy every week with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and I'm your host Andrew Dunkley. Hello Fred. Hi Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very well thank you and you? I'm fine thanks, yeah still still here. Well that's good to know, yes. (laughs) Just about everything's still here and then there are other things that have turned up that are uh, quite mysterious including Uh, Some cosmic radio bursts. Now, these do happen from time to time, and there have been some famous cases as far as I understand. But uh, still, uh, when you add the word mystery to cosmic bursts, it suggests that we don't really know what they are. Uh, And we'll still be talking cosmic stuff because they've discovered cosmic dust on the roofs of houses in parts of Europe. And my first question is, how the heck did they know to look there in the first place? And NASA is looking at um, the possibility of building an ice house on Mars. Now, Ice House for Australians is the name of a famous band, but um, this is a completely different kind of ice house, uh, which I imagine would uh, be taking advantage of the environment uh, to make life a little bit easier and obviously reduce building costs. I don't know if it's that simple. But uh, first, Fred, let's uh, look at these um, radio bursts that have uh, have been, um, well, not so recently discovered. I think these have been around for a while, but I think um, the story is that they've, they've pinpointed them. Is that the way it goes? Uh, yes, that's correct. It's a story that, um, as you say, shrouded in mystery um, in the sense that these uh, these phenomena have been observed Actually, the first one was found in uh, archival data back in 2007. And this is archival data from the Parkes Radio Telescope. So this is a very Australian story. Mm. Uh, and what, what you find is that there is a burst of quite, uh, well, moderately high intensity radio radiation. And we have radio telescopes that detect that. But it only lasts for a millisecond or so. So you blink and you missed it. Yeah. It's, um a very, very short-lived uh, uh, burst of energy. And for that reason, these things have been christened FRBs or fast radio bursts. Um, there have been something like um, 18 or 19 of them observed um, since then, because people, as soon as that 2007 discovery was made, people started looking for them um, with, um, you know, with the world's largest radio telescopes. But it turns out that one of them, which rejoices in the name uh, FRB, 121102 uh, because it was first observed on the 2nd of November 2012 uh, it's just the date backwards yeah. um, so so <laughs> so the uh, uh, this particular one uh, actually um, is a uh, unusual because it it does this burst every so often it's a repeat performer right and has um, basically uh, 
um, you know, I suppose, emitted these bursts of radiation uh, several times since it was first discovered back in 2012. So that gives scientists um, a really good target to sort of sit and wait uh, with a radio telescope pointed in the right direction uh, to catch one of these bursts uh, in action. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the scientists based actually in, uh, in the United States they used radio telescopes. I think they gathered something like 83 hours of data, um, which was actually very useful data for other reasons, which um, which I'll mention in a minute. But they did capture one of these radio bursts. And because of that, because they were using a telescope that actually has high positional accuracy, they could more or less pinpoint what direction it was in. The, the problem before had always been that the telescopes didn't have that um, spatial resolution, if you like, they didn't have the, you know, the, the the high definition that was necessary to to determine exactly what direction these radio bursts lay in, and and so the the recent one, the one that repeats itself and actually uh, provided um, this uh, fix on its position, it turns out that it lines up with a very faint smudge of light, which is being interpreted as a distant galaxy, okay. and so that is thought to be the the source of, of this um, radio burst. Um, the reason why the 83 or 84 hours of data didn't go to waste is that as well as the, the radio burst itself, there is a kind of background signal that comes from this galaxy. There's, this, there's a, a, a radiation at a much lower level, uh, which is also variable uh, on a time scale of, of just a day or two. And what that tells you is that you're looking at something that's relatively compact that's actually causing uh, this radiation. Now, whether that source that's kind of just been grumbling away in the background is related to the, the fast radio burst, we don't know. Um, that's one of the scenarios that you know doesn't have an answer yet. But um, the, uh, the, the, the identification with, uh, with this distant smudge of light, plus um, some other factors that come into it, suggests that this object is very distant and in fact they're putting an upper limit of about five billion light years on the distance of this object which of course places it well outside our own galaxy until now we didn't even know whether they were in our galaxy or out of our galaxy but of course our galaxy is only a hundred thousand light years in diameter so something five billion light years away is is well outside our our um, province um the question I'm sure on your lips and maybe the lips of your listeners or our listeners is what are these things? What yeah, causes them? The obvious and, question. <laughs> yeah, it is. And at the moment, that's still a mystery. We don't know the answer. Um, one of the hypotheses that's been suggested is that fast radio bursts are caused when fairly cataclysmic events take place, like two black holes merging, mm. two black holes colliding. And of course, we... Last year, we saw um, two lots of observations of black holes colliding, which were made by this brand new technique of gravitational wave astronomy. We saw the gravitational waves, the ripples in, in space-time that came from those, those collisions. Um, and so that, that means we know that black holes do collide. Possibly they do emit radio waves as well. And that might be, you know, the source of, of the majority of fast radio bursts. Um, there are, actually, I should say there are other hypotheses, all of which involve highly magnetic stars. That's another possibility that magnetic stars have flares on them that, that basically give these radio bursts. But um, 
what the, in a sense, uh, this object FRB 121102 suggests um, a different mechanism from colliding black holes because that repeatedly bursts and you can't have, you know, black holes that collide and uncollide yes. um, repeatedly like that. So the mechanism for that must be something different. So that's basically where it, where it stands at the moment. It's um, science that is clearly a breakthrough because we've now identified that this, these things are very distant. But uh, what they are, we're not really sure. Yeah. And you said the first one was discovered in 2007, but that would not suggest that's the first time it's ever happened. Uh, it's probably just the first time we've detected these things, and they've probably been going on for billions of years. Indeed. Um, that's right. The 2007 discovery actually came from data that were, were recorded in 2001. So that was archival data. But yes, some scientists have suggested that there might be 10,000 of these things going off every day. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, because they're such specialised things, you need um, big radio telescopes to see them and they've got to be pointing in the right direction. We're probably missing most of them. Yeah. Um, just, just one final comment, Andrew, on this is that it does highlight one of the really, I think, exciting aspects of modern astronomy in that we are now um, not just in radio astronomy, but in visible light or optical astronomy as well. We're taking a serious look now at the transient events in the universe, things that come and go. Mm. Um, when, you know, when, when I was a young astronomer, um, things didn't change on timescales of millions of years. The, 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 the stuff that happened generally, there were one or two things like supernovae and things of that sort that came and went. But generally speaking, astronomers didn't look for these fleeting, short-lived events. But we're now concentrating on these, homing in on them, and it's really a, an entirely new branch of astronomy and a very exciting one, I think. Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, what, one thing that, uh, yeah, I suppose people will now be trying to work out what these things are and where they come from. But their regularity, by the sound of it, suggests they're probably caused by something universally natural, by the sound of it. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I mean, the the uh, I guess the um, science fiction addicts among us would would, would, hope, would at, hope that they were signals from extraterrestrials. Yeah, but, but you know, if that's the case. Um, these extraterrestrials are pretty spiteful because all they do is send one signal and then that's it, mm. uh, one flash of radio waves. And they're doing it all over the universe. It seems very unlikely to me that that's the case. Yeah, but it does <laughs> sort of remind me of that that um, famous signal that was detected many years ago. And we, we did talk about it recently because they're still trying to figure that one out, but it's not the same kind of thing, is it? It's, it's quite different, that's right. Mm. Yeah. That's the wow signal. The wow signal, I think that's has, right. I think has now been identified with, with a gas cloud associated with a comet, a cloud of hydrogen gas. That's right. So that might have disappeared as well. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, we might have more on this down the track. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Roger, you're live. here also. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we go from cosmic radio signals to cosmic dust. Now, when people think of cosmic dust, they probably think of giant dust clouds spanning many light years in space that some, you know, that create planets and stars in some cases, all that kind of jazz. But no, we're talking cosmic dust that's been found on the roof of uh, roofs of buildings in Europe, which <laughs> is probably the last place you'd look for cosmic dust, I imagine. <laughs> um, actually, it is. Uh, that's exactly right, because until now, people have looked principally in in Antarctica or the deep oceans of the of the world to find these these particles. Um, cosmic dust. We know that the Earth's environment is dusty. 
Um, the, uh, the, uh, and and the, the evidence for that is, is clearly that uh, we see meteors shooting stars in the sky uh, quite regularly. Meteors are just particles of dust that hit the Earth's atmosphere and vaporize, they burn up completely. Um, we estimate that something like 50 to 100 tons of, uh, of dusty debris falls on the Earth every day. Wow. So it's actually quite a lot. Uh, quite a lot of stuff comes down. Uh, and as I said, most of it burns up in the atmosphere. But some of it doesn't. Um, we, you know, the, the larger objects that make it through the atmosphere, we call them meteorites, and we've talked about them many times before. But there is also a population of, of small dust particles um, which uh, basically they hit the atmosphere at high speeds uh, and they lose a, a lot of their mass by vaporization, but they make it down to the surface. Mm. And um, in fact, probably quite a lot of dust on, on the Earth has come from space. But the problem is, how do you find it? Um, so as I mentioned, uh, one way is to look at, at pristine environments to sort of... Uh, takes you know samples of, of ice from Antarctica uh, because then you, you you've got um, stuff that just lands and settles on the surface of the ice yeah and and you can get a good idea of of what the cosmic dust that is there uh, and, and actually deep oceans is another source um, I, I do remember these things used to be called Brownlee particles I think they were discovered by a dr. Brownlee in the 1940s uh, nowadays they're just called cosmic dust particles. Um, so what has happened uh, with this experiment is that scientists uh, actually from Imperial College in London and elsewhere have collected almost a third of a ton of, of dust uh, from the gutters of roofs in Paris, Oslo and Berlin, three European cities. How much? And then uh, nearly a third of a ton, 300 of, kilograms. Of just ordinary dust, general dust. Yeah, just, mark, just dust from, that's right. Okay. So, so then what you do is you pass this stuff uh, through a magnetic field. And because the, the cosmic dust particles often have a high iron content, that tends to separate them out. Ah. So you, you then get, um, you, you get an idea of the ones that are magnetic. And then you can use a microscope to sort out which ones have been modified by their passage through the atmosphere. These things are about a third of a millimeter in, in diameter. Um, and that's what's been done. And out of that uh, third of a ton of dust, they have identified 500 particles wow. of cosmic dust. <laughs> now, Fred, why did they think to look on rooftops in major cities? I think what's, what's happened is that the technology uh, that allows you to filter through this stuff very rapidly, uh, you know, using magnetic fields. That has now got to the state where you don't have to go to a pristine environment to try and find cosmic dust. You can, you can grab dust wholesale from uh, yeah. rooftops or wherever and, and pass it through these, um, you know, these sifting systems to, to try and identify what's cosmic. And, and that's where the improvement has taken place. So would um, this suggest that just about everywhere would possibly have cosmic dust on our roofs and gutters? Exactly. Ah. Even on your house in Dubbo. Yeah, well, it's got uh, plenty up there, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Get up there with a magnet. You never know what you might find. True. Uh, but don't fall off. No. no. So so um, that's, 
so that that 500 particles is enough to kind of do a bit of an analysis and you know see what story these are telling and uh, first of all um the the uh, estimate from the sizes uh is that these things melted uh, as they entered the atmosphere at speeds of around 12 kilometers per second which is typical of uh, re-entering objects actually it's often a bit quicker than that but 12 kilometers per second is it's it's uh, you know it's the uh, kind of normal velocity for things falling uh, down to earth um, they uh, they have structure within them that that looks like it's uh, it, it's got a slightly different uh, appearance from some of the earlier dust particles that have been found in Antarctica. Mm. Um, and one of the suggestions is that the Antarctic dust um, is, comes from ice samples. And what you're looking at is stuff that's accumulated in the ice over millions of years, maybe not much more than one million years, but of that sort of order. Mm. Whereas clearly um, what you find on a rooftop has only come down since the roof has been there. Yes, so it's exactly. Much more recent. Yeah. Um, and so this, uh, so the difference between these, the, the the fact that there is a structural difference uh, between these two groups of uh, of dust particles, the old ones and the new ones, if you can put it that way, suggests that something has changed. Um, and uh, the researchers at the Imperial College uh, are suggesting that this is due to the way the orbits of the planets have changed. That what you've got is. Um, sort of a different gravitational arena, if you like, within which these clouds of dust have moved. And, and that might then impact on how fast they, they hit the atmosphere. And, and that means that you've got these differences in structure. There's clearly much to learn about this, Andrew. It's a study that's it's in, in its infancy. But it might mean that um, these dust particles, which, by the way, are as old as the solar system, they're four and a half billion years old, um, they, they may carry within them some sort of record of, of the way the solar system has evolved. And that makes them very, very valuable to scientists. Yes, indeed. And my, my roof's only three years old, so I've got really brand new cosmic dust. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just to, to think that all of that is just about everywhere um, is, is quite astounding because, um, yeah, who, who would have thought that just living in your house, you're, you're catching material from outer space. It's just, you just, it doesn't cross your mind. Exactly. That's right. Um, it's uh, actually it's a Norwegian amateur scientist who first suggested the idea. So there you go. Good for him. Brilliant <laughs> yeah. idea. Simple yeah. and uh, lots to learn. Yeah. Uh, and when there's more to report on the cosmic dust on your roof, we will certainly let you know on <laughs> Space Nuts. What a matchup! And what a tea, Mike! Metro PCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. Play with the best. Switch to Metro PCS and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. Metro PCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax and $10 activation fee. Claim based on talking tax. Not valid for active numbers currently on our T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we head back to Mars, and I've said it many times, my favourite place in the universe. And uh, it's a planet that we're looking at very closely in terms of 
ultimately sending people there. And if you sent people there, you wouldn't send them there for a couple of days and then bring them home again like we did on the moon. You'd have to send them there long term. That means habitat, I imagine. Uh, what they're talking about is the possibility of an ice house kind of arrangement. Uh, now, for most Australians, Ice House was a great band of the 70s and 80s, but this is an ice house that's actually a house made of ice, I imagine. Is that what they're talking about? Um, indeed they are. They call it the Mars Ice Home. Right. I like <laughs> So ice they house. obviously know about Ice House as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah this is the result of um, apparently a day of brainstorming at, uh, at NASA's uh, Langley Research Center, which is in Virginia in the USA. Um, that all these scientists and architects and designers uh, got together to try and work out what would be the best building material for uh, a structure to, as you say, to house astronauts on Mars, astronauts who are going to stay there for weeks rather than days. Um, and yeah, they apparently they sort of tossed around lots and lots of ideas, some of them described as being crazy and out of the box. And finally, they arrived at this idea of an ice home, uh, which is an, an engineering solution that actually has many, many benefits. Um, what they're thinking of is uh, a, something the shape of a tire, a, a toroidal shape um, that's surrounded by a shell of water ice. And presumably that ice will um, will be basically harvested from Mars itself, um, because we know that uh, uh, I, uh, Mars has quite a lot of ice underneath the surface. Mm. If you can dig it up and, um, and and turn it into water, it may be that, um, that that in the early stages you've actually got to take your water with you. But that's that's, I suppose, a question of robotics and and uh, landing a spacecraft that's that's got that cargo. Um, the, the reason why ice is chosen, though, uh, is fairly broad based, and it's um, it actually, I suppose, flies in the face of one of the things that we've always expected would happen to astronauts on Mars, and that is that they would want to live underground um, because of the radiation hazard that, cut, that is on the surface of Mars, what, what are called galactic cosmic rays, and of course the radiation of particles from, from the sun. Um, the problem with an underground habitat, first of all, is it means heavy engineering to actually dig holes uh, and, and, and turn it into, you know, white cliffs or something like that uh, here in Australia, a uh, place where people live underground. Yes. Um, but um, it also means that astronauts live in perpetual darkness, or at least they don't have any daylight. And one of the nice aspects of, of the ice uh, home is that there's translucence in the ice. So it does mean that you've got this diurnal um, change in the light, the light condition. Plus the fact that there is some shelter from, uh, from radiation. It's not anywhere near as effective as going underground, but it does actually provide uh, some, you know, some shelter from, from that, uh, that radiation. Uh, and it, of course, it's got to withstand the dust storms that we find on Mars. Uh, and, and the ultraviolet radiation from the sun, all the rest of it. Um, it is a very interesting idea. And uh, maybe when NASA astronauts finally do set foot on Mars, which we expect to be around 2035, um, they might be living in an ice home. Well, it's not a new concept. The Eskimos have been building igloos for thousands of years, I imagine. So they're ice homes. Yes, indeed. Temporary, and actually... But... Um, 
Uh, I, I make regular visits, as you, as you know, up to um, uh, northern Norway and Sweden to see the Aurora Borealis. And uh, in Kiruna in northern Sweden and also at Alta in Norway, there are ice hotels. These are hotels that are made of ice and mm. they really are made of solid ice. Uh, the walls are ice and the furniture is ice. Wow. Uh, and even the bar is ice. And when you go in the bar, you drink out of uh, yeah, glass is made of ice. And you can only so, drink vodka because that's the only thing that doesn't freeze. That, that's probably right. <laughs> when you get um, in these low temperature environments, ice behaves like a perfectly good building material. Well, so, we've talked yes. about that before on, on uh, some of the uh, outer moons and, and um, other planets that, that it is so very cold that the ice is it's, it's got it the same properties like, as solid rock. Exactly. That's right. Mm. Yeah, and exactly. I imagine Mars has got the right conditions for a, for a nice house it, it does it's um uh, there, there are places on mars where under certain circumstances the temperature gets above zero but it's pretty rare uh, for the most part mars is well below freezing so yes ice is a pretty good medium okay just got to watch out that you don't accidentally spill antifreeze on it or else yeah. your, your <laughs> <Yes>. home might dissolve <laughs> well i'm sure they'll be aware of that let's at, at least we hope so yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll leave it there, Fred. And uh, thank you, as always, for, for talking to us each week. We really do appreciate it. And uh, we will catch you next time. Sounds great, Andrew. All the best to you. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you again for listening to Space Nuts, the podcast that uh, is, uh, well, we're coming up on a year together. And we certainly appreciate your support. And we'd love for you to um, review us on iTunes, tell your friends, communicate with us on Facebook. Uh, and, and just uh, keep in touch generally. And if you've got questions or ideas that you'd like us to talk about, by all means, send them to us. We've been getting a few of those lately and we're working through them and we'll be sending you uh, the answers um, directly on Facebook if, uh, if that's how you communicate with us. Until next time, though, thank you again for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.